Hey folks, this is Brian Loritz, and welcome to the Kainos Podcast. We are a pastoral podcast exploring what ethnic unity looks like in a large, predominantly white Southern church known as the Summit Church. And we are also just glad that so many of you are listening in who are part of Summit, but there's also plenty of you who are listening in who are not a part of Summit. And today I am just really excited because I get to sit down with a friend of mine, uh, Pastor Mitchell Lee. I've known him for several years. We can talk about that in just a few moments. Uh, we've shared, uh, uh, you know, a lot of ministry time together. Some of that ministry time together may or may not have been around some beautiful golf courses in the Bay Area and and uh, Maryland. We can talk some about that. And but Mitchell Lee is uh, a pastor of uh, the lead pastor of Grace Community Church. Am I saying that right, Mitchell? That's right. And it it. It is, um, it is a large, flourishing, multi-ethnic church. And so selfishly, I'm just uh, ready to engage this conversation uh, so that I can personally learn and glean some things uh, from Mitchell's own life and experiences um, and for you all to also hear uh, and learn some things as well. Mitchell is uh, married. How long have you been married, Mitchell? Uh, 19 years. It'll be 20 next July. 20 next July. You, you got big plans for the big 2-0? I thought we did, but then my wife's having some other questions. So I'm like, oh, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. And uh, four kids, all boys. Am, am I remembering that right? Five, man. Five kids. Four Five. boys and a girl. Okay. Five, yeah. Four boys and a girl. I, I figured mm-hmm. it. I, I, I thought I knew about the four boys one. Sorry to cut you short there, bro. Five kids, man. Um hey, Wow. We've got five. We've got five kids. So I'm always forgetting one anyway. So it's all good. Okay. And I, I just love Mitchell's spirit. So on a very lighthearted note, man, I, I was really proud of myself because I was fishing up in Colorado uh, a couple years ago, and I caught a trout that was so huge that I could not hold it the normal way. Um, and so uh, I actually, you know, had it kind of dangling from north to south, not from east to west, which is, I guess, the way you're supposed to hold it. But it was so big, it kept slipping out of my hand. So I was just trying to hold on to it for dear life. Uh, had a picture taken, posted it, was pretty proud of myself. And who was the first one to kill me on social media for how I was holding the fish? <laughs> Yours truly, Mitchell, <laughs> Mitchell Lee. So he's in my life to keep me humble, but he's an avid fisherman too. So yeah, Mitchell, thank you. Uh, thank you for keeping me humble, bro. Right. I have a, I have a, actually an album in my phone. That says uh, Loritz fishing poses, and every time I catch a fish, I put it in there because I'm gonna just send it to you periodically. Like here's how you hold a fish, buddy. Oh, unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. So, so Mitchell, real quick, man, catch us up. I know you grew up in the Maryland area. Um, uh, d- did you grow up churched? Uh, when did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Just kind of take us on that journey. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm a second generation Korean American. My parents immigrated from South Korea in 1974. I was born the following year in 1975. And actually we were the first in like my dad's side of family to ever start going to church. I remember my earliest memories were to going to a Korean immigrant church when I was six years old. That was the beginning of it. Uh, my dad was the first Christian in his family. And, uh, that was that overlaid with, so trying to practice faith. What was this? How does this faith integrate into family life? 
with all the rigors of being immigrants, self-employed, trying to find jobs, raise two kids, all of that sort of stuff was my journey. So I would say, yeah, I grew up in the church. I grew up in the Korean immigrant church and thought that that's where I would spend all my days um, until, you know, I went to the University of Maryland, uh, went to seminary at Southeastern. So it's really cool to uh, wow. kind of be back in the listening audience of uh, the summit. Uh, what is that? The stratosphere of, of summit church. <laughs> Um, back then JD was actually, when I was in seminary, JD was just finishing with his PhD wow. at Southeastern. Wow. Um, so to see what God has done through that ministry and I mean, gosh, to have friends there and things like that, it's been, it's been neat. So after seminary, um, I found myself, uh, actually before seminary, I went to Korea. I lived in Korea hmm. for about a year and a half to understand a little bit more language, my culture, uh, and Came back, went to seminary, lived in Chicago for about eight years, right when I got married. So my wife and I like to say we became adults in Chicago and then felt the Lord calling us back here to Maryland uh, 11 years ago. So I've been here 11 years and been at Grace Community Church as the lead pastor for seven of those 11 years. So your first four years, though, you were what at Grace Community? You were on staff, right? I was the teaching. Yeah, I was the teaching pastor, um, worked with young adults. And uh, had no idea that uh, I was coming here as part of any sort of succession plan at all. Um, but uh, as the Lord would have it, four years into it, uh, our the lead pastor at the time, who had had a heart disease for a long time, maybe 20 plus years, and was carrying that, he just finally came to the point where he's like, I don't know if I can continue to give leadership on what this church needs. Talked to our elders, and then our elders began a process of transition and succession. Okay. Give us a feel for, because we're we're rounding the corner here. We're going to talk about, you know, uh, multi-ethnic church stuff. Um, give us a feel for what the church looked like when you first got to Grace Community from an ethnic perspective. Uh, if you could also talk some about its surrounding community, what that looks like from an ethnic perspective. So, yeah, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, so 11 years ago when I landed at Grace, it was 96% white. I mean— just to put it in perspective, I think uh, I was the first non-white hired on staff. Wow. Um, How many people? And at that time, there were probably about 1,500, maybe maybe a little bit more, maybe about 2,000 folks Okay. Um, at the time. But really, we could, like you could know the names of all the non-whites. Huh. That's, that's how it, it felt, huh. right? Okay. Um, you could, oh yeah, there's Vernon, and oh, okay, there's, you know, uh, so-and-so, and so... It really was a homo- homogeneous white church. Uh, and they were in a county at the time, you know, I grew up in Maryland. So Howard County, where we are, was always kind of known in the Korean subculture that I grew up in as kind of like white rural hmm. uh, county at the time. Uh, Montgomery County, where I grew up, was far more diverse, far more urban of a feel, closer to D.C. Um, but Howard County always felt like kind of the, the, uh, the backwoods. Um, you know, you fast forward now, Howard County, uh, the diversity around our church has exploded. Mm. Um, in fact, I think the public schools are looking at for the first time that whites are the minorities in, um, in some of the schools. Um, and so the community around us was, is just, there's a lot of, um, African American, uh, Asian, um, East Asian, South Asian. Uh, and then just to the east of us, there's a large Hispanic uh, population. To the south of us, a lot of Hispanic population. 
Uh, so we really are now, as a church, we really are reflecting more and more of our community. It's really been a, quite a marvelous thing to see. I mean, you've, you've been with us and you kind of saw it yourself of like, uh, this is just normal for us. You know? Yeah. So uh, listen, le- so let's just kind of fast forward a little bit. And then I want to, I want to take a couple steps back and just talk about how we, how you got there. I, I just got to tell you, based on the eye test, I don't, I don't even know if I've asked you kind of the specific percentage breakdowns, but just ba- based on the eye test, um, it feels like several thousand people are now coming. So there's been numerical growth at the church. And for sure, it is one of the most ethnically diverse churches uh, I've ever uh, been to in the United States. So uh, can you give us the ethnic breakdown percentages, if you know those off the top of your head? How many people, maybe how many people prior to COVID? Because like a lot of churches, maybe you're just getting back to pre-COVID numbers. Yeah, just catch us up, Mitchell. Yeah, so pre-COVID, we were probably on a weekend, maybe about 4,500. Um, okay. That's, you know, from kids all the way up. Um, I mean, just busting at the seams. Yeah. It was it's a really, really neat. COVID, you know, really decimated us. We're probably back at right around the twenty-five to 3,000 yep. um, place, but the the diversity has really exploded. I mean, it it's... Uh, it's a really beautiful thing. I mean, hmm. my, my wife and I, we were just with our family. We were at dinner and we're having dinner at one of our church members' house. He is a um, Haitian background. His wife is El Salvadorian and we are sitting around uh, eating um, mole and Puerto Rican rice. Uh, it mm. just I'm like, where, <laughs> where am I right now? This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and so the explosion of it, the, the population of it, the percentages... Brian, it's been really hard to try to figure out. Um, we've tried various ways to ask what ethnicity people are, and everybody's kind of like, well, why do you want to know? Where you, yeah. you know, it's, it's just kind of a, it's <laughs> right, been a right. really, I, I've asked several people, how do you guys figure this out? It's been really difficult, but I would probably say, well, probably, I would say maybe about 50% white and, and the half just everything else. I would say that the next largest ethnic group is either going to be uh, somewhere in that East Asian or African. Um, but then, I mean, gosh, the other groups are just really right behind it in terms of visibility and leadership and things like that. So that's great to hear. I mean, it's exploded from the time you've, you got there. Uh, you, you were like the only nine, non-white staff person. It's a huge deal that they would hire you. Um, yeah. you know, to, to be the lead pastor and then to where you all are today as it relates to diversity. Of course, the logical question is, um, how did that happen? And yes, we want to just say God did it, right? But I always like to use the James 5 imagery of we're that hardworking farmer, mm-hmm. right? So it's, yes, God sends the rain, but there's a part that we play in this as well. So wh- what were some things like, was this a part of the vision when you stepped into this or did it just kind of organically happen or a combination of both? Yeah, I don't think it was part of the vision. It organically happened. But just like with anything that's going to happen at a church, right? Something organically happens. You have to figure out how we're going to steward this. Yes. How are we going to respond to this, right? So if, gosh, all these people are coming on a Sunday and then you're like thinking, okay, how are we going to steward that? We need to get small groups or Sunday school or some other things to disciple them. I've used the same illustration or analogy to talk about our ethnicity and our ethnic unity. Yes, God started it. It was that like, you know, but I think putting 
a uh, Korean American behind the pulpit um, was a big part of it. Hmm. That um, but that, that I had a voice and influence on the the life of the church. This is even before I was the lead pastor. I think that transition of oh my gosh, now it's a Korean American who's going to be leading this thing um, <laughs> is a uh, is a is a big part of it. Um, and then once we got there, now we were talking about okay, how are we going to steward this? Um, I want to invite. I want to look for. I want to hire. I want to give a place to. Uh, people of color on our staff in places of influence want to give position. Um, we're going to hire staff intentionally this way. Uh, it was not without its lumps, but we definitely took some steps to say, okay, this is now our stewardship. How are we going to steward what God is doing among us? Yeah, so I think it's important. One of the things I'm hearing you say is the very fact that you're hired as a lead pastor, and along with that comes a consistent representation visibly from the stage. They're hearing your voice. That played a part of kind of what happened. So, mm-hmm. you know, it goes without saying what happens on the stage, issues of representation matters. But mm-hmm. then as God is bringing people in, you just feel this joyful burden of, hey, something's happening here, and I want to steward it steward that well, which led you cool. to go, uh, we, we, we got to make some uh, strategic hires from a leadership perspective, um, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And that's born great fruit. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody who's gone down the road of multi-ethnic ministry uh, knows this. And for those of you who are listening here, and maybe you have an appetite to plant a multi-ethnic church or to transition your church into a multi-ethnic direction, um, I love what Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get <laughs> get punched in the mouth, right? So there, there, there are just some realities uh, to this uh, that I think, for example, we're just coming out of, uh, namely that period known as COVID-19 and a whole bunch of stuff that happened politically and racially, so on and so forth. Can you speak some, Mitchell, about some of the challenges, right? Because Satan's not going to sit back and go, oh, this is great. Look at what's happening at Grace Community. All these different people are coming. Um, what's been some of the challenges going down this this path of ethnic unity? Man, so gosh, um, so many challenges. It is not, you know, we've talked. It's not for the faint of heart, right? Um, don't do this if you're thinking, oh yeah, that'd be really cool, and that's the way of the future. I want to, you know, plant a multi ethnic church. I mean, God's going to do so much in you as the leader as a result of this journey. Um, I'll speak specifically, Brian, from as an Asian American having to lead this, because mm-hmm. um, there were definitely some punches in the gut that I took. Um, you know, one of the qualities that define the Asian American experience is the just the the being caught in between the binary of black yeah. and white, um, and with that comes the model minority, the perpetual foreigner. These narratives or actually not narrative, these ways of like self-perception of thinking of myself as Asian American, I actually thought in leading this that I would get a pass on that, that I could be somebody who'd stand in between the white and black folks or the woke and the conservative folks and get them to listen. And what actually happened was that when I would say something to one side to try to advocate for the other, I was just tossed in as on the other side. Wow. And... 
boy, that hurt. Wow. That pushed on all. I didn't realize how much of a people pleaser I was until I engaged into this work because I wanted to make everybody happy. Mm. I wanted to bring everybody along. And some people are just not going to want to hear it. They're not going to want to come along. And that one really hurt. I mean, that mm. I had close friends in this who we were in life, like community group with, who just up and left. Mm. Um, and they just cast it aside as like, suddenly now I'm in that camp. And yeah, actually one of our pastors and I were talking about this today, like, you know, as an Asian American, let's just say like, think about like the 1960s, just so you can understand the dilemma here. In the line, in the time of segregation and you go to a restaurant and there's a colored line and there's a white line, where does the Asian person go? Wow. Wow. What line do I go in? Yep. Right. And, and actually I, I stumbled upon this interview in a time magazine where this, uh, it was like from the sixties, I think or seventies. And this, this guy, this Asian, the Asian American guy was talking about, and he's saying, I got in the colored line and I got to the register and they said, what are you doing there? You need to go to the other line. <laughs> and so he hopped in the other line, he got there and they go, what are you doing there? You need to go to the other line. And that like for me encapsulated where I found myself. Wow. I actually thought that I could, that people would give me a pass that I could speak on behalf and no, 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 no. Um, I got really punched in the face and it, I realized how, uh, how much I needed people's approval. And so then I started just saying like, okay, I got to say what everybody wants to hear. And then you end up saying nothing, mm. right? End up saying nothing. So that was a big piece of it. Um, I thought we were further along in our ethos and our discipleship of discipling out racism. I thought we were further along than we were. Mm. And, um, it was a, even my elders, I thought my elders were further along than we were. And it was a pretty violent wake-up call that, wow. ooh, we have foundational work to do. Um, yeah, we're multi-ethnic, we're diverse on our Sundays, but now, now the Lord's giving us the opportunity to get it into our ethos, into how we exist and how we think and how we honor each other. But we didn't have any of that foundation, and that was really exposed um, during COVID. So we, we lost a lot of people who thought we were going too slow and a lot of people who thought we were going too fast. You know, if you think about a bell curve, everybody on the each end, <laughs> the golf. Yep, so, yep. We felt some of those same tensions uh, at our church. And I would actually say what you're articulating is actually a normative experience among churches who were pushing hard for ethnic diversity and unity during the pandemic. Mm. Um, so, so Mitchell, um, wh one of the reasons why I'm excited to have this conversation with you is the very thing that you brought up, and that is the black-white binary, and how this conversation too often just focuses on those two groups. Part of me gets it because historically all of the mess and they've been the two most polarized groups in the United States. So I get that. But we do need to lengthen the conversation and be a lot more inclusive. So here's a question for you, Mitchell. As um, Take off your pastor hat and, um, and put on your church member hat because some people are listening here and they are pastoring churches in communities where there are, um, there are a lot of Asians, how do you think uh, you would want to be pastored in this conversation in the context of a local church? What are, this, mm. what are the unique things that Brian Loritz needs to understand about our Asian siblings as I'm trying to disciple them holistically, especially in the area of race? 
Oh, man, it's such a great question. And actually, I mean, been doing a lot of thinking about that, at, you know, for our time in January, actually, yeah. um, in terms of how, how do we really articulate where Asian Americans fit in this, uh, this conversation as a church member? Um, one thing that would be so helpful for pastors to understand some of the, I, I love this, Daniel, uh, Dr. Daniel Lee, he's a, a guy out of Fuller. He proposes this idea of instead of stereotypes, what if we worked off of archetypes? And the difference, the difference in this is stereotypes is the conclusion is already made um, versus archetypes are like, here's what I know to be true. Some basic things that I might, might be true, but I'm open to the ways that it might be unique for you. So an example would be um, if you knew that migration was a archetype for the Asian American experience, right? People immigrated. Right. If I knew that to be the true, like, okay, that's an archetype, then I might approach i would want to be approached as i know that this is might be or may not be formative for you i know it's something in play how have your how have you experienced that where do you find yourself in it um another archetype might be just the idea of like yeah the black and white binary is an archetype it's there it's not that every black person necessarily feels it in the same way because that would be a stereotype but the archetype says that's going on there now, how does that uniquely manifest for you, Brian Loritz, in the life trajectory that you've lived? I'd want the same thing as an Asian American. Okay. And the places where a pastor would, I'd feel really seen by a pastor is if they actually spent some time to ask questions about some of those archetypes, uh, the generational gap. Uh, you're a second gen. What does that mean, Mitchell, as a Korean American? Um, are you invisible in this? Right, I know a lot. A lot of Asian Americans feel invisible in this. Is that your experience, or is it not? So, versus just coming and saying, "What is your experience?" A lot of Asian Americans, myself included, would probably just like, "Oh, I don't know. I'm just going to back off." But to actually seed the conversation with an archetypal uh, idea, topic, and then allow for that kind of give and take, the back and forth. I'm going to talk a lot more about this in January. About there are specific archetypes that I think I can load into a pastor, a multi-ethnic church planter's uh, vocabulary, uh, at least to start with and allow, you know, that pastor to engage that particular person, that particular Asian American person uniquely as, as it's played out in their life. I hope that makes sense. I'm still kind of processing through it, but. Perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Well, he here's my challenge personally, and I don't think I'm the only one who has this challenge when thinking about my Asian siblings and, you know, even in the triangle, there's this growing Asian community. One of the things, Mitchell, that trips me up in engaging our, agents, our Asian siblings is um, many of the Asians I know have a natural, quiet, deferential posture that can oftentimes be interpreted, dare I say, misinterpreted as not being really concerned with things from a racial perspective. So even like I have to remind myself to even check in during the COVID-19 pandemic and there are this, this very hateful, disturbing Asian rhetoric, uh, outbursts, uh, incidents of violence towards Asians. You know, when something happens to a black person, I mean, we're gonna be loud about it. We're, we're, you're gonna know how we feel. I don't naturally sense that 
among most Asians. I want to be careful and even humble, try to have some humility to say, I could be wrong, but this adds a wrinkle because I can almost say, you're coming across like it doesn't matter. Like, help me understand what is oftentimes seen as a quiet deferential posture. And and how do I draw them out? Yeah, so we want to be real careful even about the, like, you know, the kind of essentialism that says, like, all Asians are that way or, right. you know, that Absolutely. kind of thing. Absolutely. And, even, and, and then even we would have to nuance, and this is where it can get really exhausting, I understand that, but it's like we want to nuance. A lot of the COVID-19 actually was targeted to East Asians, Chinese, Korean. Most people couldn't tell the difference. So there's, like, that East Asian side of it. And why aren't they saying anything? Why aren't they doing anything? So one of the archetypes of this versus a stereotype of like, well, they're just quiet. They don't miss the archetype could be the collectivist mentality. We're just like uh, a lot of Asian cultures. They're not self-promoting in that way. That's for good things and bad things. They're not self-promoting. I stumbled upon this actually as I was talking oh, with my, our friend, Mike Kelsey. Um, yeah. This was years ago. We we're talking and I stumbled upon the ideas. He was talking about just the ways that racial trauma was talked about in his family and passed on as a kind of warning, yep. a kind of be careful. I was like, I don't have a collectivist memory that way. Like, hmm. I remember seeing my parents that happened to them, but they never wanted to talk about it. Hmm. Right? So we don't have a, we don't have a collective memory on, upon which to, to, to try to even express what we're feeling because it's like, well, are we really is this unique to me or is this really actually happening? So something like um, the Atlanta shootings happens, yep. right? And there's people, there's some uh, Asian Americans who are so loud and so like, oh, go gung-ho about it. And there's others who are just really quiet, but they're feeling the pain nonetheless. Um, I actually think like, you know, sometimes they say, hey, when something like that happens, it's good to call your um, Asian American or, you know, you call, you call your African American friends and say, Hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you processing this? I actually think for some Asian Americans, I'm just speaking for myself. Like it could be very like, Hey, don't, don't put the spotlight on me okay. in terms of where my, and that's, where my what, that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, Mitchell is, mm -hmm. is what is Christ-like thoughtful engagement to our Asian siblings? Because again, if, if, if some national, uh, tragic traumatic event happens to a black person mm -hmm. that's perceived as being racial we're such a communal people that when we go to church that sunday we're our posture is please say something please say something please say something mm -hmm. are you are you I, I want you to coach us in this and i know it's an awful position to put you in and it's impossible for anybody to speak mm -hmm. on behalf of a whole group sure. of people we get that sure from your experience, it, would it be faithful pastoring for me to say, hey, we got to call a timeout here and maybe change the sermon, say a prayer, do something because it's right to do, but because that's the expectation our Asian siblings have? Yeah, I think it would totally be in a communal uh, corporate sense to stop and say, hey, we need to address, we want to lament together, We're yeah. for, we need to pray together. I think that would be totally appropriate. And I think both first, second, third generation Asians, Americans would, I think they would feel cared for. The The funky part of it is, you know, sometimes churches have gone one step further and said, you know, we're going to gather 
all the people of a certain ethnicity. We just want to lament and hear your pain. We want to hear about the death. And I don't know if you guys have ever tried that at the summit. I'd be curious as to see, number one, who shows up? And number two, when they do show up, if they really say and put themselves out there to say and vocalize something. Funny you should bring that up. Mm. So, so we do a quarterly dinner with our, with our Asian members. It's a beautiful moment. It's not a lament session. Mm. Um, I, the reason why I, part of the reason why I did it was for very selfish reasons. I need to be coached in, in how to think about and love and engage you all well. So that's, that's a small part of it. It's potluck. Food's amazing. Mm. Uh, this last one, uh, one of the younger Asian members um, uh, said, you know, she's kind of overseeing it now and, you know, she's going to take the, you know, the ball and advance it down the field and she's going to lead the thing. So she got up and said, uh, listen, you know, how, how can we engage together as a group and what's the next steps for us? And, you know, there's, there's so much difficulties we deal with or whatever. And it was some of the, it was one of the most awkward exchanges because the older Asians got up and first generation. And for the most part, they said, what are you crying about? Do you know all the hell I had to go through? You should be happy just to be here, right? And it was this older, younger kind of dynamic that I just kind of sat back. I didn't say a word, Mitchell. Wow. Uh, Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. They didn't even really see the need for it is is what I'm presenting to you. So So, so let me – let's just think about that for a second here because what I want you to see and all the listeners, I want you to – in that, that's a great example. The first generation, second generation, third generation. There is, with each successive generation, there's an increasing distance. There's an increasing distance from, I'll just say, it, this is going to sound really pejorative, so, you know, from the motherland. Yeah. There's an increasing distance. And so the concerns of Asian Americans in the second and third generation, you're going to hear actually a lot more vocal. You're going to hear a lot more... Things that maybe that you're used to actually seeing in black communities, brown communities, I think you will actually begin to see a little bit more of that as uh, Asian Americans are, are finding their voice and finding that sort of validation in American culture and media and all those kinds of things. First generation, they're much more closer in distance to that journey of uh, the motherland. And it's not a historical distance, actually, because if you think about like when the earliest Chinese immigrants landed, we're talking about 19th century. Right? We're talking about Chinese Exclusion Act, 1882. So it's not a historical distance as much as there's some kind of, I call it the time warp. Hmm. Like my, my parents are kind of stuck in a time warp. Or my mom's like, the Korea she remembers is not actually even the Korea that her sisters live in right now. Hmm. When she immigrated, it was kind of like a frozen in time. Uh, and that's what she remembers. And there's a distance that increases. Like I'm further removed from that. I might even know a better, a, a more accurate Korea than my mom does um, just because of time, but she's kind of stuck in that place. So she's saying, yeah, like it's, it's different. I, I, I'm, how am I trying to say this? It's different from then just the older generation saying, well, we had it so much tougher. Hmm. What, you're, what you got to witness there is actually the distance across generations of from the quote unquote motherland. And that, I mean, I'm still actually personally for myself, my own journey, teasing out what that looks like. Um, because there's this weird hybrid that I live in 
that where I'm like, I'm not really Asian, I'm not like I'm not white, and but I'm some hybrid in there in the middle of that. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my voice? What does that mean for my contribution? We are in real time watching a generation process that, real time. And, and you know? how are your kids processing that? Oh man! So like you know, we went to Korea this past summer as part of sabbatical, and um, you know, a few days into it, my second son, who's thirteen. He goes, Dad, it feels so weird, but really comforting to be in a place where everyone looks like you. Hmm. And I, I paused. I was like, wait, but you can't speak the language. You can't read the signs. Like, you're more of a foreigner here than hmm. you would be back in the States. But there was something about that collective ethos of belonging that has really clicked for him. And yet, at the same time there, I'm like, what world am I living in? Like, BTS and Parasite and all of this, like, you go turn on Netflix and there's all this Korean dramas and all right, this. Right, right. I'm like, what world am I living in? Because... And my kids love anime. They love anime. It, it's become all mainstream in the American culture. I'm like, what on earth? Where? What time am I living in right now? Because I'm at, I, I grew up in a time where it was like, I didn't want to bring Korean food to lunch for school because I was going to be made fun of because it smelled funky. Mm. And now some of my, my, my son's friends are actually bringing Korean food mm. who aren't even Korean. Mm. Um, that's where we're working it out. I mean, real time. What does this mean? What does this mean? And I think we're going to see a lot more visibility. I mean, second generation Asian American girls saying, what's our next step? Where are we going to go? Doesn't surprise me at all. First generation saying, what are you? What are you talking about? What are you doing? Doesn't surprise me at all. Um, third generation. Ooh, let's see. My okay. my kids' generation. I don't know. It's still it's still to be written. Okay. You know, still to be written. Well, as we prepare to wrap up, uh, I think kind of the last deep question uh, that I would want to ask is, you know, you hear this, and there's there's the the actual book by its name, "The Myth of the Model Minority." Can you unpack that a little bit when we when we think of the Asian experience in America? Mm -hmm. So the model minority is the idea of um, hitting Asians uh, against other minorities as a way of um, uh, as a way of describing and illustrating the efficacy of the American dream. Hmm. Okay, so it is the Asians are model minorities because look. You might say there's, there's systemic stuff. You might say that there's structural stuff. No, look at these Asians. They're just hard work, grit, and they're just working real hard. And look, they're successful. They're making it. They're succeeding. That's the picture of the model minority. So the model minority is a sort of turning minorities against each other, saying, well, you know, Hispanics, black community, brown community, you guys have you guys are complaining and whining about that. Look at this Asian, look at this hmm. model minority hmm. that they're living out the American dream. And if you just do what they did, then you would achieve it too. I mean, that's the real parentheses. That's the real dark shadows side of it. The crazy thing is, is that the Asian communities believe it themselves. I was just about to ask you, is that kind of an internal narrative that's like, hey, we're not going to be like these other minorities, right? Just mm -hmm. kind of keep your head down, work hard. And you can make it. Yes, right? Uh, there's no ceiling. You can do it. I mean, that's what our first generation, my parents, right? And so there is that, there is that we believe it ourselves. And then you see in second, actually second, so it, it manifests in different ways. First generation might say, see, we believe it. Let's just work really hard and we'll make it and we'll be fine. 
Second, third generation now begins to think, okay, well, I have to live in that and I can't cause trouble because I don't want to lose the status that we've achieved based on living out the model minority. So we're not going to be as um, uh, politically active. We're not going to be as involved in community. We're going to kind of do our little enclave thing, provide for each other, care for each other, and we'll be just fine. Uh, And that is... It's really deep. It's really deeply entrenched. You know, when I first joined a, a non-Korean church, Brian, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how deeply ingrained the minority complex was. Right? How, did you, how did you feel it? I felt that I was like, do I have what it takes to make it in this church? And the crazy thing is the church I had come from, Korean church, was actually larger than the <laughs> white church that I joined. Yeah. But okay. I was like second guessing myself. I was so insecure about my own gifting recall. The stuff that worked in that context, will it work here? And I was like, oh my gosh, I felt like a minor a minor league pitcher being called in the major leagues. And it wow. was all based on race. Wow. Not based on size, not based on complexity of ministry. It was based on race. And that's that's when I realized how ingrained it was in me, this model minority complex. You combine that with the perpetual foreigner, you combine that with the binary between black and white, that three unholy trinity. Um it has the makings for some, uh, just a really confusing, confusing journey for a lot of Asian Americans. Absolutely. And listen, I feel some of that, what I call disequilibrium as well. Um, you, you do feel a little bit kind of dizzy at times. Hey, folks, you've been listening to a conversation that me and my friend Mitchell Lee have been having. Mitchell is a Korean-American lead pastor of Grace Community Church, uh, one of the Um, largest, flourishing, thriving, multi-ethnic churches in the country. God's using him in amazing ways. You've heard him talk a couple of times about when he'll be with us, us meaning the Summit Church in January. We do our annual ethnic unity retreat, and Mitchell will be speaking to us. I've asked him specifically to not just talk about ethnic unity, but uh, how we can take some proactive steps towards our siblings in the Asian community, which is a growing demographic right here in the Triangle. I am so excited to get more time with Mitchell here in, uh, in January. And again, thank you for listening to the Summit's Kainos podcast. We are a pod- pastoral podcast that focuses on issues of ethnic unity uh, within the Summit Church, a large, predominantly white Southern church. Till next time, folks. And um, hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful week.